Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to this show from your friends over the Atlantic Ocean. Unless you're not over the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. Should I do that again? I think, yeah, I think it works fine. Do you think that, that mixed up intro it's, it's, works it's perfectly well? It's perfectly unprofessional, <laughs> as is the rest of our So show. it fits in nicely with, with the show. Okay, fair enough. We have nothing of import. To discuss tonight. Amazing Spider-Man 2 open today. We've not seen it. Nope. We'll get around to it, I would imagine, at some point. Mm-hmm. Not as good as Captain America, I bet. But you never know, maybe. Unless you go in there and you see it and it's the best film. Ever. Ever, not ever. Well, maybe not ever, yeah. Let's do some email then, because we've been lax in our email we have. over the past couple of weeks, haven't we? First email tonight is from the mighty Luke Giaconetti. It is entitled, More Than Meets the Eye. It is the first of many... Transformers feedback emails that we received. Mm-hmm. The Transformers fans are very vocal. They are, yeah. And like the Transformers very much. Mm-hmm. And didn't mind two witless idiots blithering <laughs> on about something of which they know nothing. <laughs> which we appreciate, Transformers fans. Yeah. We appreciate that you didn't uh, beat us with the all spark mm. for not knowing anything about the Transformers in many ways. Luke's email is entitled appropriately enough, more than meets the eye. Andreon Pax and Michael Tron. Oh, I quite like Michael Tron. I'll be Michael Tron. Okay. Because <laughs> I can say that. <laughs> ba weep grada weep ninny bong. I have no idea. He's not the only person that emailed us in with yeah. that intro. I presume it's a Transformers reference. I, th- I think it's the sound they make when they transform. Is it? I thought that was more of a. Yeah. I thought it was a. That as well. That's, yeah. that's good. Yeah, I do like that. Just wanted to drop you guys a quick, hopefully, note to let you know I really enjoyed your Transformers UK episode from a few weeks back. I'm a big classic TF fan, and I've read all of the American series, but sadly not all of the UK stuff. But I have read some, including The Enemy Within, so this brought a smile to my face. I did want to make some quickie comments on questions you guys had during the show. The Decepticon ship Nemesis was not named as such until the Beast Wars era of the mid-1990s. Marvel still retains the original non-Transformer characters from this series. The most well-known is Circuit Breaker, who popped up in Secret Wars 2. Michael made the comment that the TFs were puzzle toys, which is close, but not entirely true. They did come with instructions on how to convert them to each official mode in both the US and Japan. Of course, you were free to make up your own modes however you wanted. The toys, which became GoBots, or the Machine Men in the UK, were called Machine Robo in Japan, and they were puzzle toys in this sense, but they were generally simple to transform anyway. Andy asked whether the Transformers were truly alive. 
They are, but just as life on Earth evolved as organic organisms, life on Cybertron is technological. So they are living machines who can be hurt and die, although they are very tough and resilient. Transformers also possess a soul of sorts, alternately called the laser core or a spark. The Transformers have Earth-based alternate modes, because when they crashed on Earth, they scanned for local life forms to mimic. On Cybertron, they had alternate modes of Cybertronian vehicles and technology. The Decepticon jets, or Seekers, all use the same F-15 mould as a cost-saving measure. The second wave of Seekers use the F-15 body, but add unique wings to help differentiate them. For example, Thrust has a pair of turbines in his wings. In Transformers fiction, this has been expanded to mean that the Decepticons have a vast air force, all using a shared appearance with personalised colours. Megatron's alternate mode is based on him being a cannon on Cybertron. Typically, Starscream would fire him, but Megatron very rarely transformed. He would be rebuilt into a tank during the Generation 2 era, when Megatron is reformatted into Galvatron in the original movie. His alternate mode is a cannon once again. Ravage is a cassette tape because he was a minion of Soundwave, who turned into a micro-cassette player. Soundwave and his tapes were incredibly popular and stuck around for years. The Autobots had a counterpart, Blaster, who turned into a boombox and similarly had many tapes to assist him. Apparently Soundwave and Blaster were their respective sides communications expert. You guys mentioned a G.I. Joe crossover. Marvel TF and G.I. Joe exist in the same universe and crossed over several times. The Generation 2 era was launched out of Marvel's G.I. Joe comic. You have good timing with this episode, as by the time you read this email, Simon Furman will have wrapped up the entire Generation 1 continuity with the final issue of IDW's Transformers Regeneration 1 comic, which picked up where the original comic ended, including using the original numbering. By the time Furman took over the writing duties on the US title, the UK stories all essentially became canonical, and aspects of them began to permeate over the entire series, and he is generally recognised as THE Transformers comics writer. This is not to dismiss the work of Bob Budiansky, but Furman is generally seen as being to Transformers what Larry Harmer is to G.I. Joe. Thanks for the show, fellas. Luke, you're very welcome, Luke. We covered all of that, because Luke's email essentially encompassed all of the things that everybody emailed us about regarding Transformers. So, the other people who have emailed us about Transformers, we have edited for content. I do apologise, but we didn't want to do redundancy. But we will address the pertinent points, will we not? We will. So thank you for that, Luke. You saved us some time. (laughs) Uh, The next Transformers email is from Jason Trenner. Transformers UK Review is his entitled... Is his entitle? Is his title? Yeah, like there was a chance I wouldn't comment on this show. Hello, Leylands. Uh, you can't find this to be a shock. I mean, I was on the Transformers The Movie Commentary Track podcast. My first recorded words on a podcast were regarding Megan Fox. She's as robotic as Shockwave. And I agree utterly with you on the live-action Transformers movie, Andrew. Good. I was kind of... I was a bit afraid I was going to annoy Transformers okay. fans with my opinion of that film. But they all seem to think it was crap as well. Well, maybe not all. Luke had no opinion on the film. Mm. Maybe, maybe, maybe Luke liked it. Or maybe Luke had no opinion on the film because he just... He's a man of taste. Pretended it never happened. <laughs> what about the two sequels? They also did not Has happen. there not been a fourth one yet? They're making a fourth one. Oh, right, so that's not actually out yet. No. Right. They've, they've dropped Shia, I'm Not Famous, and they've got Marky Mark on and stuff. Have they? Yeah. Wow. And have, have they dropped Megan? Yes. She got Oh, they dropped her a while ago. Oh, right. Okay. When she made that commentary about the Holocaust. Oh, right. Spielberg yeah. said, hey, hey, Michael, drop her. Van Spielberg is boss. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Jason continues, Seriously, I'm probably one of the most hardcore Transformers fanboys on Earth, and the base stuff is easily some of the worst of Transformers' body of work. 
The other stuff includes kiss players, which has girls kissing Transformers to give them superpowers. The Transformers, not the girls. And that's the least of that manga's problems. You don't want me to go further. It gets far worse and much more embarrassing. Which is a shame, as the series it was part of before was new Transformer bodies and exploring between the second season of the cartoon and the movie. Enagon, or Superlink as it was called in Japan, literally runs out of story halfway through the show and drops nearly all of the subplots in the toilet and flushes it. So I do not blame you for being turned off by the abomination that is Michael Bay's first Transformers movie, as I literally fast-forwarded through the romantic parts and avoided the follow-up film like they had Cosmic Rust. (laughs) Bite your tongue, Michael! The soundtrack of Transformers the movie is awesome! Another person who loves the touch, (laughs) apparently. I mean, personal feelings towards 80s hair metal aside, at least it was a soundtrack used in the film and wasn't some emo person's iPod favourite set to random, like the soundtrack for the Michael Bay movies. Though the scores for the live-action Transformers movies are pretty good. Trust me, that's pretty much the only good thing I'm saying about that. And yes, there is a Megatron X, Michael. It is a boss in the Nintendo 64 Beast Wars fighting game. So how does that feel? Um... (laughs) Does it feel good? I, I, I guess, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Very odd you didn't mention Carr as one of his two appearances. He was voiced by Peter Cullen. I thought we did mention Carr. I thought we did, because it was an excuse for you to get your... It was an excuse to get my kit out, wasn't it? Yeah. Which, which is not like getting your kit off. That's a completely different thing. And besides, on an audio medium, we could be sat here tackle out there, wouldn't we? It would be a bit uncomfortable. It would be very uncomfortable, yes. Yeah. So you can leave your hat on. As the song once went and yeah for robots in disguise continues Jason the Transformers have really been bad at being able to keep the war hidden not a subtle bunch to be honest <laughs> we thought that didn't we? yeah <laughs> hiring the winter soldier just to keep yeah. the <laughs> bring the winter soldier to make sure it stays covert <laughs> yes. I'm sure neither of you know is that the Gen 1 Classics releases in the UK and Europe were what resurrected the Transformers brand as it died in the US and Japan and from that came Transformers Generation 2 and from the Beast Wars and of course the line goes on what more can I say except wreck and rule Jason Trenell thank you very much Jason nice to hear from you emailing about the uh, Transformers show always nice to hear from people Transformers more than normal length feedback is the email from Kyle Benning. I do apologise, Kyle, but it's not more than normal length now. (laughs) And he opens with bar, weep, gra, weep, ninny, bong. (laughs) That just sounds surreal, as Spike Milligan would say. It's pretty funny how they spelt it the same way. So if it is a sound... (laughs) It is. I do love how they have consistently spelt that. It must be from the comics, then, mustn't it? Yeah. I presume. Maybe it's how the comics depicted... Yeah. The the sound thing. God, you do it better than me. Yeah, maybe that's how the comics did it. Alright, fair enough. I am so glad you have tackled Transformers, says Kyle. I have the entire US Marvel run from the 80s and some of the more highly toted UK arcs. It's one of my all-time favourite properties and I love the Marvel UK stuff. And he was so excited. That's all in capitals. With lots of exclamation marks. And has more exclamation marks than a Stan Lee comic. <laughs> That's how excited Kyle was that we did Transformers. <laughs> Should we just do a Transformers podcast? Sure, yeah. <laughs> Watch the ratings go through the roof. <laughs> all that crap that we normally cover nobody gives a toss we're doing the wrong kind of podcast we are yeah G.I. Joe we should be doing yeah and the Transformers G.I. Formers you know what else would do well I think a porn podcast oh yes yes (laughs) oh stop (laughs) I can see a synopsis of that very well you have just creeped me out now yeah (laughs) the photocopier man showed up at the door (laughs) Kel surprise 
candy answered and all the clothes <laughs> fell off. There was a hole in the pizza box. <laughs> Arthur bruised his upper arm. <laughs> um, how can you not love Simon Furman and Jeff Senior's take on Cybertron and their creation of new characters like Death's Head, says Kyle, bringing us swiftly back on point. Wasn't Death's Head a metal band? Death's Head... Yeah, they may have been, but they were also a Marvel character. Oh, fair enough. Death's Head Revisited. That's a great name for a metal band. Or a sequel. Or a sequel, <laughs> yes. Or a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> to a film they never had. It's like if they did Downton Abbey and put Freddy Krueger in it. I, I'd actually I would watch that, that yeah. <laughs> I say this is a terribly horrible team. Just laughed at <laughs> My favourite arcs from the great UK line continues Kyle bringing us back on point. I've got to be the legacy of Unicron, Fallen Angel and Target 2006. Target 2006 was an option for the show, wasn't it? Yeah. That was one of the ones that was sent to us. I love the Transformers 1986 animated movie so much that I will go on record claiming that no one, that's right, no one, has watched the movie more than I have. I have literally watched it over a thousand times. You do any quote from that movie and I will give you the line before it and after it. Seeing that in print seems less impressive and more sad and pathetic than anything else. <laughs> oh well, life well spent. <laughs> That's funny. I do like Kyle, he is funny. Uh, great episode, guys. Oh, thank you, Kyle, you're very welcome. I really enjoyed your recap of one of my favourite properties. I hope you both enjoyed Transformers and that you'll give Furman's later run a read. It is much, much better. At this point, he would have been still been fairly new to the concept of this property, and I don't think a real clear direction has been set in stone in either the UK or US offices. The early issues of the US comic doesn't hold up that well either, but the run really picks up steam in later stories. Can't wait to hear what you both cover next, Kyle Benning. And there's a PS from Kyle. He thanks us for the Marvel fanfare. You really need to thank Bob Fish because mm. he was the one that said we could pass that on and his wife is still doing very well in the pregnancy stakes so I hope that continues to go forward Kyle, considering this email was probably some time ago uh, next we have an email just called Belated is Batman Feedback Holy belated Batman feedback, Batman. That's what you should have called it. Hmm? Uh, it's from Gus Shaw. Hello, Gus. Salutations, folks. I wanted to write in and thank you so very much for the bestest Batman double feature you released so very long ago. I'm sorry for the delay with my feedback. Stuff got in the way. Gus, it's okay, man. You, you get to emailing us when, when there's a good time. I always knew that I didn't know much about Batman, continues Gus, but I never really appreciated how much I didn't know. After listening to your buffet of Batman's greatest hits, I've concluded that this is no small part due to a combination of bad timing and my poor eyesight. However, without my Batman-deprived history, you wouldn't have had a motivation for such a phenomenal double episode. I hope other listeners enjoyed the coverage as much as I. From your spectrum of Bat history, I'd probably enjoy stories showcasing Batman's detective roots. I've never had any exposure to the television show from the 60s, but I gather it's not my cup of tea, nor stories emulating their campiness. What I've learned about current comic books is that I'm just not their target demographic. Most of them don't appeal to me. That's okay. There's still decades worth of stuff waiting for me that I never had a chance to read before. I think my lack of exposure to regular comics increased the appeal of the Whatever Happened to the Caped Crusader storyline. Without the exposure to similar themes, it felt like a good standalone narrative to me. I found the Raish Al Ghul character intriguing. This was my first knowledge of him. Most of Batman's rogues gallery I recognise a Joker, Penguin and a few gimmicky second and third stringers. When I get an overlap of free time and working interest, I will definitely look him up on Wikipedia. If, if you really want to, Gus, we heartily recommend the Demon's Head episode of Batman the Animated Series. 
yeah. that adapted... Was it Daughter of the Demon that it adapted? Is that the one at the end with the Lazarus Pit? Yes. Yeah. So it adapted that, and that's worth checking out. And that'll give you everything you need to know about Rachel Goo mm-hmm. if you can't track up the original Batman stories. Uh, Daughter of the Demon and whatever the other one was called. Son of the Demon. Son of the Demon and Birth of the Demon and the Demon goes to town and the Demon on holiday and the, the Demon strikes back. Carry on Demon. Carry on Demon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the Demon has risen from the grave. Demon's on a plane. Yeah. Demon 2008. Okay. <laughs> or Dracula 1970 AD. That would be better, wouldn't it? Demon 1970 AD. Yeah. That works perfectly well. Uh, Ghost continues, I also found the tale of Batwoman interesting. Since I missed out on the Adam West TV series when I talked to Batman fans, I get confused over new, to me, characters such as Batgirl. My first thought was Bruce had a daughter. It still confuses me a little about the lack of logic beyond copyright needs in who gets to be a Bat person and who's a Robin. This iteration of Batwoman Michael provided sounded like a quality superhero I would enjoy learning more about. I was excited to learn about Crazy Quilt for the first time. He balances out the spectrum of Daredevil and Alicia Masters. It's nice to know the supervillain industry is an equal opportunity profession. <laughs> yeah, just because you're blind doesn't mean you can't be a scumbag in the DC and Marvel universe. Yeah. Although Daredevil's a hero and Alicia's the sculptress. So, equal opportunity. amazing sculptors. Yeah, but just by touch. Yeah. And her woman's intuition, which oh. is totally a superpower. Oh, Ben, I've fallen in love with you just because of this touch. <laughs> My, how? How? Well, yeah, that's going back to doing that other podcast <laughs> that we talked about. Let's not talk about making the thing hard. Stanley said that that happened, so... Yes. Well, I don't want to know, to be honest. Has he? In, in more apps. Oh, God, yeah. Gus continues, I hope as I find out more that it turns out that he is a character that is or went blind and not just a blind character. Just because they're presented on a two-dimensional medium is no excuse to produce flat characters. I don't know why, but I'm also interested to learn more about Harper Rowe. Is she new? Or did she have previous iterations? Take it away, Michael. She is new. Introducing Scott Ryder's... Scott Scott Ryder? Scott... (laughs) Bringing it back to that other podcast... Mm. Uh, Scott Snyder's new Batman run in the new 52 he's only showed up like three or four times but she's going to have importance in Snyder's run after zero year or eternal or eternal she was set up as the new hero in Batman Eternal right okay fair enough Gus continues, I believe that any story can be executed well, even if the idea sounds hokey, e.g. Batman as urban legend. However, any story about a bored Batman is going to be a boring story to summarise. I can imagine a good team producing a wonderful story showcasing Batman's off-time awesomeness, training his martial arts, target practising with the Batarangs, tuning up the Batmobile, inventing new gadgets, but I think the plot would still be difficult to summarise in a compelling manner. I trust your judgement that Gotham hates. <laughs> that Gotham Knights 18 was a good read. It just doesn't sound well good to me. <laughs> I think that may have been my fault. <laughs> Batman hangs around the Batcave. Aquaman shows up. The end. Yeah. <laughs> Overall, I highly enjoyed these two episodes and hope your listeners did too. The other 14 of them. <laughs> I'd look forward to your Joker birthday specials as well as archival episodes expanding on the Caped Crusader. Respectfully, Gus. Well, Gus, if you're interested in the Batman, I can only recommend that you hop on over to your podcaster, podcatcher of choice, whether that's iTunes or whatever, mm-hmm. and download the untold history of the Batman from Hypnobobs, the podcast Hypnobobs. Right. It's great, absolutely fantastic. Mr. Jim Moon hosts that show and he's not paying me to plug it in fact I'm pretty sure he doesn't even listen 
But go and check out Hypno Bob's History of the Batman because it's a fantastic show. Or alternatively, listen to our Batman episode. Oh, go back and listen to our many, many, many Batman we're episodes. We're not being if but a Batman, <laughs> not a Batman podcast. podcast. We've not done Batman for a while. We need we to uh, hush. We need to do hush. Yeah, and, and Night of Owls. And Night of Owls and yeah. Zero Year and Mike's yeah. I might substitute Night of Owls for Zero Year. <laughs> Zero Year is really, really good. Well, you ponder on that, young yeah. man, while we decide what you're doing in September. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couch there. <laughs> you can sleep in the shed. <laughs> With the bikes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear me. Oh, we've got time for one more, haven't we? Oh, uh, yeah. Chris Franklin! Good old Chris. Supermates podcaster extraordinaire. With his, his missus. Cindy. Bob Kane, more than meets the eye. I, I don't think he was a Transformer. He could he could have been. He probably lied about it. Okay. He probably said he was a Transformer and he quite clearly wasn't. Or, <laughs> on Cybertron, this Bob Kane wrote, wrote Bat-Bot. Bat-Bot. Or Bat-Former, depends on what you want to go with. Yeah. Bat-A-Tron. And he, he, he turns into a bat. Alright, fair enough. Or an F-15 that works Or an like F-15 bat. bat. Yes, that's his bat wing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello, Leyland. Hello, Chris. First off, thanks for the Supermates plug. You're very welcome. Now back to Bob Kane <laughs> and Jack Kirby and all that stuff. I kind of get where Michael Bailey is coming from. At the end of the day, it gets tiresome to get tangled up in these messes we only know snippets of truth about. But here's my take as of this moment anyway. Bob Kane, I agree with Trey, I think it was Trey's assessment of Kane thinking like a comic strip artist. That was Kane's goal, to be a famous comic strip artist. He truly felt like every artist who followed him was his ghost. As comic fandom became more prominent and fans wanted to connect the dots on who did what, Kane's puppet strings began to show, and rather than just roll with the flow and admit it, he held on to his old-fashioned ways, denying almost everyone else's involvement in Batman's success. In later years, he admitted to the ghosts, although he never acknowledged his most prolific one, Sheldon Moldoff, and even said that he should give Finger a byline. By then, popular opinion was beginning to turn against him, so that may have been the motivation for his near-deathbed confession. Bill Finger. I haven't listened to Kevin Smith's Fat Man on Batman interview with Neil Adams yet, but if Adams said Finger didn't ask him for help, I understand that. But Finger was vocal about his hand in Batman's creation, beginning with the first comics conventions. Finger dropped a bombshell on fandom with his revelations. This is why Kane wrote the nasty letter to Batmania fanzine in the mid-60s. I don't think Finger ever sought compensation, but he apparently did want some credit for his co-creation of Batman. Jack Kirby, I recommended the first issue of tomorrow's new comic book creator magazine that details how Kirby was constantly preoccupied with providing for his family to the point of making safe and ultimately bad business decisions to ensure his family wouldn't go hungry or homeless. Another sticking point with Kirby is DC does compensate his estate for the use of the fourth world characters, but Marvel, which was built on his back, does not. I agree that legally these companies don't owe these creators or the hers anything, but morally I believe they do. It's good to hear Marvel is doing right by Bill Mantlo in regards to Rocket Raccoon. The WB gave Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill a substantial check for the use of Ra's al Ghul in Batman Begins, even though Ra's was created several years before Jeanette Kahn enacted the character participation program, which has gratefully benefited creators like Wolfman and Perez on Teen Titans and Chuck Dixon on Bane. Kirby's kids are still fairly young, so it would be nice for Marvel to honour his wishes and at least give his estate some compensation for the incalculable contribution to the company. But that's just my take. Transformers! Told you there'd be some Transformers <laughs> in here somewhere. I loved them as a kid, continues Chris. Watch the cartoon religiously. Had tons of the toys. They had a pretty good Peter Cullen Optimus Prime for a nine-year-old. The Marvel Comics? Meh. 
I bought them, but there was something lacking. The colouring was horrible, usually. Not a very attractive book. The animated movie was a huge event for me and my friends. Main characters died, humans cursed, it had good animation, and Michael will laugh at this. I have the soundtrack on delicious vinyl! Yes, I bought the soundtrack album new in 1986. One of the first real albums, non-power records, <laughs> that was mine and not a handy-me-down from my sister. How can you not like The Touch, which is the cheesy song played when Prime and Megatron have their epic and final brawl? Hell, Mark Wahlberg sings it in Boogie Nights! Another fun and enlightening episode. Gentlemen, take care. Chris. Well, thank you very much, Chris. There you go. I think that um, the listenership has spoken that, that with regards <laughs> to The Touch yeah. by, uh, by Stan Bush. Mm. I think you need to apologise to the nation, even more so than you did last week. I, I, <laughs> I believe that I'm not blinded by nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> All right, have you gotten over your guilt from last time? <laughs> Oh, no, there, there, there were no emails uh, that made me feel as guilty as Michael Bailey's. Oh, did Mike make you feel bad? Oh, he dug the knife right in there. <laughs> Good. Anyway, we'll be right back as we, uh, as, what are we doing? Oh, the 70s. Yes, we're doing yes. those, those issues sat right <laughs> under the honour. big pile of essentials and showcases that I have right here. Yeah. That are a big clue to what we're covering tonight, and I couldn't remember what we were doing. How long have we been doing this? <laughs> Oh, listen to a trailer. There'll be some professionals along in a couple of minutes to do the show for us. Hey, a bunch of damn dirty apes. It's me, Maury Clawhammer. Don't you recognize me? Of course you don't. I've gone back to my simian roots. Maury Clawhammer is going ape. That's right. Coming soon at TwoTrueFreaks.com, it's Planet of the Apes Month. Hey, look at me. I'm peeling a banana with my feet while watching all five of them monkey movies. Now I'm reading a chimpanzee comic while swinging on my swinging tire swing. Woohoo! Then it's toy time when some kid throws me a vintage Mego Dr. Zayas action figure. And I'm going to put it where the sun don't shine, in front of a whole third grade class. And nobody's going to bat an eye. Then I'm going to pull it out, and I'm going to fling it at him. It's a whole month of monkey madness, coming soon at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Check it out. I'm devolving by the second. Or is it the other way around? to Hey Kids Comics look at the Bronze Age of comics, but specifically the 1970s. We don't care about the 80s. The 1970s gave rise to many new and varied concepts and ideas. Both DC and Marvel entered the decade spurred on by the success of the 60s, but also with a desire to move the medium forward. Nothing was off the table, including talking ducks named Howard. Making his debut in Adventure into Fear before spinning off into his own strips as backups in Giant Size Man-Thing. Pause for laughter. 
Howard the Duck is generally regarded to be the creation of Steve Gerber, although Val Meyerick is also credited as co-creator. The character took the comic book world by storm in the 1970s, and Gerber initially used Howard to parody horror stories, which Gerber found to be a crashing bore when he used to write them, but later used the character as a mouthpiece for political statements and social satire. Howard the Duck launched in his own title in early 1976, becoming arguably the first speculator-fueled comic, selling out its initial print run of 275,000 copies in days, and subsequently commanding high prices on the secondary market. Howard himself became a phenomenon. He featured on the cover of Village Voice magazine, and writer Gerber found himself being interviewed by Playboy about the popularity of the character. Truth be told, Howard wasn't universally loved within the halls of Marvel. According to Sean Howe's book, Marvel, The Untold Story, Marv Wolfman thought that Howard was too dark and gruesome. But Stan Lee is quoted as saying it was the best written comic he'd ever been jealous of. In 1976, Howard was even announced as candidate for president. The character was not without his controversy, attracting the attention of the Walt Disney Company, who requested Howard's appearance be changed so his resemblance to Donald was less pronounced. In 1978, Gerber was fired from the strip after disagreements with Marvel over creative control, and he successfully sued Marvel to reassert himself as the creator of Howard. Gerber argued that Howard was created before the work-for-hire contract had been initiated, and before the 1976 copyright law went into effect, and, to the surprise of a lot of people, he won, although the conditions of the agreement remained confidential due to it being settled out of court. Gerber had previously used satire in Man-Thing, something that had arisen merely to keep Gerber interested in the strip, as he thought the Man-Thing character was a personality-free zone, but in Howard, his thoughts on then-current society was given full voice. He mocked consumerism and materialism, violence as entertainment, and the whole concept of group think and self-help seminars. I've tried reading Howard the Duck a number of times and could never get into it. I bought this essential volume when it first came out and tried reading it. Nada. Did nothing for me. I tried again later. Still nothing. One day, idling at the bookshelf looking for something new to read, I pulled it down and this time tore through it, reading through the entire essential in but a few days. Whatever it was, maybe I just wasn't in the mood, maybe I just wasn't ready for Howard, was gone. And I managed to see and appreciate the madness that was Howard the Duck for the first time. As described in his first few stories, Howard is an anthropomorphic duck who finds himself lost in space and dumped on Earth, specifically Cleveland. He quickly meets up with artist's model Beverly Switzer, and they have bizarre adventure after bizarre adventure, but none more bizarre than Howard the Duck, issue 16, cover dated September 1977. Had you read any Howard the Duck before this? No. Not at all? No, I've only seen the film. <laughs> I, I like the film. Yeah, it's it's not as awful as everyone says it is, but, you know. Well, it must have done something, because near the end, both you and Mum were asleep, and I was dozing off myself. And you were still watching it? Well, yeah, because the bit at the end where the big monster thing stop motion, and I like stop motion. And he gets to snog Liam Thompson. With his nine Marty McFly. Yes, Marty McFly's mum. <laughs> <laughs> that means Howard's Marty's dad. <laughs> Never thought about that in Back to the Future, did they? No. 
The cover builds it as a once-in-a-lifetime issue, and Howard finds himself at the mercy of his most powerful foe, the Incredible Creator. He and Beverly dive out of the way of clawed hands as it tries to type on the giant typewriter they're stuck on. Gene Colan and Tom Palmer did the art on what is possibly the first Meta Comics cover. Do we like that cover? Yeah. I like that cover. I think it's perfectly serviceable. You can tell it's Tom Palmer, can't you? I can't. Oh, can you not? No. All right. I can tell it's Tom Palmer, <laughs> but uh, I, I grew up reading Tom Palmer inking Walt Simonson on Star Wars. I instantly recognise Tom Palmer's work. It's very distinctive. They're bouncing all over a giant typewriter so that conjures up Batman in the 50s images. Mm. Good cover, though, isn't it? Yeah, I like it. I think it's quite good. Zen and the Art of Comic Book Writing was written and edited by Steve Gerber, with art by a cast of thousands. Eve Wertonaby, lettered, Doc Martin, a pseudonym, I presume, coloured, and Ed Hannigan and Nelson Yomtov are created, are credited, sorry, with production. When struck by the dreaded deadline doom due to severe overwork, Steve Gerber, writer, pens an entire issue devoted to his flights of fancy and his thoughts on the creative process and the constant war between it and commerciality. That was a great synopsis. It was fantastic, wasn't it? <laughs> How would you have synopsized this? Why did you pick this? It is a seminal 70s comic book, and the whole point of right. what we're doing is to cover seminal characters okay. of seminal comic books of the decade that style forgotten. Only arguably. I don't there's no there isn't an argument here. This is a seminal Marvel seventies comic book. Whether you like it or not It's not even about the main character. No. Carry on. It's just the writer using it as a means to convey his opinions. But he's not doing that through the character. In fact he's interrupting a story just because he's on a deadline just to convey his feelings through himself. Did it sound like Animal Man to you? No, it didn't. Oh, right, okay. Because Animal Man was Grant Morrison using the Animal Man character. <laughs> Until the end. Until the end. But that wasn't just, oh, I'm kind of on a deadline, so I'll just stop the, the current story and just write, talk about myself for a bit. See, I'm I'm baffled that you don't like this, but no, you I, liked Meta Morrison. I did like this. Oh, right. I'm so, not saying I don't, so you're coming out of the gate, like... I'm not saying I don't like it, I'm just saying there wasn't much of a point to it. And it would have been one of those times where, if I'm reading this on a monthly basis, I'd be really annoyed when this issue comes would out. You? See... I suppose I can see that point of view. See, I read it in the essential, so I just I just tore through the entire essential. Yeah, uh, I do remember thinking this one was a wacky one mm. amidst a, a series of wacky ones. <laughs> but this was the wackiest of the wacky one. The, the, essentially, the issue is an essay by Gerber on the nature of writing, and that was the closest I could come to a synopsis. Yeah. I mean, when we were earlier on, when we were having tea, Michael said, how the hell have you synopsis that one? I just thought we were just going to read out the essay. Well, and what did I say to you? I said, oh, you'll just have to wait and see, for I am marvellous. And basically, that's all I did. <laughs> we should have just read out the essay, taken in terms. You know, just, just to dramatically enact out the book. Yeah. Maybe we should have done you that. Do a Howard impression. <laughs> <laughs> that was Carmen. <laughs> Mum. <laughs> um, the first page is just a reprint of the last page of the previous issue. Oh, so it's an actual reprint? It's an actual reprint, yeah. I would have been really annoyed if I was reading this as it came out. Why? 
Because not only is it interrupting the story, but it's also reprinting the previous page. Uh, you know, see, you, you could be forgiven for looking at that and just thinking it was just recapping the last page of the issue before we went wham into a new issue. Yeah. So if you picked it up off the stands, you would just think, oh, all right, they're just recapping the page. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> and you get to the next point, you're like, oh, you really annoy me now. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the Gene Cole on page is, is just reproduced Xerox, whatever you want to call it, from the last issue. The rest of the issue is splash pages and two-page spreads. Alan Weiss draws a hero shot of Howard. Ed Hannigan and Bob Wyacek depict Garber's writers-alike plants monologue, with Gerber at the head of a large plant and his characters represented on each bloom. The initial introduction is basically Gerber apologising yeah, for this issue not being an issue of Howard. Yeah. And some people have pointed out, surely it took more effort for him to write this than it did for him to write a normal script. It probably would have been easier. I was thinking that when I was read it. No, because he's just spewing out yeah. stream of consciousness thoughts, isn't he? Yeah. Which is always much easier than actually trying to do a plot. Hmm. And also different artists drew each page. So Gerber could have spewed this out of his typewriter and all of these artists could have been drawing it at the same time. Yeah. So conceivably you could have got this issue done together in a day. Mm. Really, so I didn't understand the crit- that criticism that I read. That he could have, by the time he wrote this, he could have done a normal plot. I don't think he could. A plot is probably is harder to write. I would imagine. Uh, two of the faces in the plant, the writers like plants page, look like John Romita faces to me. That one there, yeah. That one there. I don't know who they are. Is that that's Omega the Unknown, isn't it? I have no idea. I don't know who that boy is, but that's Man Thing. That's Beverly. That's Howard. That's some other dude, and that's another dude who I don't know. But those <laughs> two, dudes. yeah, those two are very definitely John Romita faces. So whether there's some tinkering going on in the art process later on, I don't know. It wouldn't be the first time John Romita has touched up people's faces. You know, we really wouldn't want to leave that lit cigarette there next to all the flowers. No, it's going to set it on on fire, isn't it? Yeah. I do like worthy signed it in that case. Ed Hannigan has signed the cigarette, and Bob Wyasek has signed the the packet that mm. has the cigarettes in. I thought that was. Uh, that was quite cool. Dave Cockrum next depicts the next page, which is uh, a depiction of the dreaded Deadline Doom as a fork in the road, complete with editorial edicts and pressure. For some reason, a Martian war machine from the 1953 War of the Worlds movie and an eagle from Space 1999 yeah. are also flying around. Oh, there's a giant shark, though. And Jaws is there, yeah. yeah. I presume it's Jaws. This was, what, 76? And Jaws was 75, so that will have been at the, the pop culture radar at that point, won't it? That's what I assumed. Tom Palmer takes Gerber's comments on the obligatory comic book fight scene and interprets it as a Las Vegas showgirl and an ostrich against the mind-numbing menace of the killer lampshade. <laughs> Steve Gerber would use those characters altered to avoid a lawsuit, obviously, in a DC Vertigo book. Okay. I think it was called... Was it called Vegas? Yeah, yeah. You remember that? It was, I it, know was it, yeah. it was those two, wasn't it? Yeah. Her and the ostrich. I don't remember anything else Did about that. that the lampshade dies after that, though? Yeah, 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 the lampshade dies. <laughs> Very sad. Is it, I, I laughed so... <laughs> <laughs> I laughed at that poor creature's <laughs> death. <laughs> you, you, you. Just the way it was written, and then the lampshade had a fight, and then after this, the lampshade died. <laughs> 
Gerber's next page, about how writing isn't a natural thing and creating something from nothing is hard work, takes place at the Grand Canyon. Al Milgram draws Gerber looking over the majesty of nature, whilst Howard is the iconoclast pointing out that it exists because nature made it and there's very little naturally beautiful about it. The characters of Man-Thing, Shang-Chi and others, including Mandrake the Magician apparently, all ride a rainbow across the canyon. It's a little bit trippy. With a big tank, though. Yeah, there's a big tank, and I didn't recognise any. Is that Buddha? Is that Buddha? And there's a Roman, and Caesar, and various other people. I yeah. mean, some of these 70s... Are these 70s pop culture reference that just serve right over our heads? Yeah. In many ways. So if you've got to do that, where's Farrah? <laughs> yeah. In the back, she's one of those. <laughs> yeah. I've been seen with Farrah. John Buscema illustrates the story of Ramsludge Hawthorne and his wife Remarca Demonstrata and his battle against debt and bureaucracy. Dick Giordano then draws the next page which deconstructs and analyses the preceding story using the text as a metaphor for Gerber's problems with stagnation and restrictions placed upon him by the company. This takes the form of Howard teaching a creative writing class and concludes with the idea that the problem may actually be Gerber himself. Mm. That was the conclusion I reached yeah. at the end of this rather self-indulgent twaddle. Mm. <laughs> it, it, it was it was Howard just yelling at him. Yes, well, Howard represents his id, doesn't he? Yeah. He represents the, the inner, the guy who's saying you're selling out all the time. I see no problem with selling out, so you're making money. Fair enough. Well, that's just me. I did quite like the story, though. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. It is, it is seminal. Mm. in many ways it's uh, we'll may as well finish the last page because we've got the lovely listener yeah Mike Nasser and Terry Austin conclude the issue with a page where outraged Marvel fans throw the typist Gerber and his creation Howard labelled a fluke into something that breaks them down to conveyor belt pieces Gerber strained brains is the end result mm. of being thrown into the musher it's complemented by a fake fan letter from Gerber about the issue we've just read. The letter is self-effacing and not embarrassed to point out Gerber's flaws as a reactive writer, but the image says that Gerber may be far more concerned that he's a one-trick pony. What did you think of it, Michael? I enjoyed I liked it. It's just, I didn't... I love it. Yeah, I liked it and I understood the message it was sending... But I didn't think there was really anything there. It was just him talking about himself. And if if that was a way for him to get over his problems, then fine. But as an issue of a story within itself, it, it doesn't really work all that well as a reader. Right. But you could just jump straight into this having never read Howard and not know the preceding story or the following story and still read this. I don't think you'd enjoy it then. Do you know? It's, then it's just... If you're just jumping into this, then it's a reader, that a writer banging on about himself that you've got no attachment to because you've never read, you've not read the rest of his stuff. Do you not think it's a good example of how the 70s were very much a decade of trying to expand the form and tell different kinds of stories still within the mainstream comic book media? Or did you just think it was rather self-indulgent? No, I, th- I thought it was a good experiment. It just I don't think it worked as well... So it was a noble experiment that put the patient died. Yeah, I think it's only really the only thing holding it up is the the art. Yeah, of the different artists. Yeah. Um. You know, see, I don't disagree with you. I do think it's a seminal and very important seventies comic book. I don't necessarily think it's a great one. It's interesting. It's a very interesting issue. 
and would be incredibly influential on not only John Byrne's She-Hulk in the late 1980s, but Grant Morrison's Animal Man run. Mm. I certainly think Morrison must have read this mm. to, to throw himself in the story in the same way. Hell, could have even been an episode of Moonlighting, couldn't it? Yeah. With all the fourth wall breaking. I mean, the idea that characters know they're in a story goes back to Shakespeare. So it, it's not original that Shakespeare characters in the play would constantly break the fourth wall, the wall in question being the one that separates the audience from the character. So, having established that this was very influential, one of the things that we are looking at in this series is, was it any good? And did it hold up? Kind of. And yeah. yes... <laughs> it holds up. I think it holds up in the way that all books on writing are equally valid and invalid at the same time. There's, you know, no writer writes the same way. No process is identical. But the good ones, Alkin seemed concerned with the clash between art and commerce. But it is very definitely self-indulgent, mm. and there's more than a little bit of navel gazing. But it was, you know, it was a reasonably entertaining read, albeit one that does test the patience of its reader after a while. Yeah. Is that what you think you found? It was interesting, but after a while you were just like, get on with it. Yeah. I think it probably did help Gerber more than it entertained the readers. Yeah, but as a one-off experiment, it's notable. And it's very doubtful this would have seen print in any other era but the 70s. Even now... Uh, in this era of hot superstar creators, I think this would be considered self-indulgent twaddle. I think it would work now if he was a superstar writer. Now. You think? Yeah. See, this isn't something I want to say on a regular basis. Mm. This, th- stop telling me how stories are created and why, and just tell me a good story. Yeah, is pretty much what I. I enjoyed it, and I liked it for what it was, and I appreciated that it was expanding the comic book art form past just sequential panels. Essentially, it's poster book. But there is an awful lot to read here, so your complaint that you would have felt a bit short... I wouldn't have felt short-changed by what I'd spent on it. There was a lot to read. It's just what you're reading, though. Yeah, it isn't what you're expecting. And it's, it's... Challenging is good. Yeah. I don't mind being challenged by what I'm reading, but there is a certain part of me that think whilst it's probably been influential and very well remembered, it's a little bit navel-gazy. My favourite bits of it was the story and the fight scene because there was a story there to read. What, Ramshackle and uh, what's the first? His yeah. missus. Yeah, and it, it had quite a good twist in the end as well. Yeah. That two-page little shout story there. Uh... Steve Gerber would go on to have a serious disagreement, putting it mildly, with Marvel over Howard, and according to Denny O'Neill, despite the lawsuit in his favour, Gerber did not die a rich man. Howard ran out of steam at the end of the 70s and never really regained his popularity. Gerber did, however, manage to get the last laugh when an unofficial crossover between an issue of Spider-Man Team-Up and Savage Dragon had a villain create a number of clones of Howard during a fierce battle. Savage Dragon is later shown escaping the warehouse with a character hidden in a bag. They reveal that they rescued the real Howard, while Spider-Man left with one of the clones. Howard has his father dyed green and is renamed Leonard the Duck, a character now owned exclusively by Gerber. Gerber did this when he learned Howard was to appear in a number of other Marvel books not written by him, and he almost cost editor Tom Brevoot his job in the process. What do we learn from that, kids? Spider-Man never has any luck with clones. (laughs) 
So does Marvel own Howard the Duck outright now that Steve Gerber's dead? Because he, he did return in a, a Marvel Max yeah, miniseries, did. didn't he, that Gerber wrote? Yeah. That I vaguely remember being quite good. I've read it, mm. and I remember enjoying it. But isn't, he, isn't there another animal in it? I can't or remember. Howard as another animal? It may be. You know, I don't remember. Is he a rat? There is a rat. Right. Is that in? Is that in the, the Marvel Max? You know, I don't remember. Yeah. What you're saying sounds vaguely familiar, and he's tingling <laughs> some bells, but I can't remember the exact details. Mm. Yeah, it does sound familiar, though. The final word on Howard the Duck can be summed up by the writers of the 1986 movie and how their version differs from Gerber's. The main joke of the strip, according to Gerber, is that there is no joke that life's most serious moments and most incredibly dumb moments are often distinguishable only by a momentary point of view. Screenwriter Gloria Katz, who adapted for the comic screen, declared, It's a film about a duck from outer space. It's not supposed to be an existential experience. The difference between art and commerce, right there. I didn't think the film was all that bad. It's not that bad, but it's not got any of the bite of the comic, has it? Let's be honest. It works as a film. It probably did. It didn't at the time. Everyone slagged it off. <laughs> the people like the touch, it. so, yeah. Well, <laughs> they even renamed it Howard a New Breed of Hero so that we wouldn't know he was a duck. That's yeah. a true story. Over here, and in other territories around the world, it was renamed Howard a New Breed of Hero. Right, how, how do you... Once the film starts, how do you avoid <laughs> the audience from knowing he's a duck? Once the film starts... Do they lure you in? Yeah, once the film starts, they've got your money. That's yeah. what they don't care. That's, that's the way it works. By the 1970s, the Western, longest staple of US comics, films and television, was on its last legs. Long-running shows such as The Virginian, Bonanza and Gunsmoke lasted into the 70s, but all had time finally called before the middle of the decade. Production on Western movies was starting to tail off, and Western comics likewise was starting to fade away. Scholars of the Western as an art form can probably offer a far more compelling reason than I for this steep decline in the popularity of a genre that was once top of the world, but the cultural changes in the landscape and the constant re-evaluation of real-world history no doubt played a part. It therefore seems paradoxically surprising, and not at all surprising, that into this era of Western revisionism and fading popularity, Jonah Hex should hove into view. Hex was created by John Albano and Tony Dizaniga, and first appeared in All-Star Western issue 10, cover dated February 1972. Initially revealed as a bounty hunter in the post-Civil War era Old West, Hex wears a Confederate soldier's uniform and the right-hand side of his face is deformed. Albino will only write Hex for a short time before turning over the reins to Michael Fleischer, the man credited with defining and refining the character, and the one who gave Hex his tragic backstory. Young Jonah was sold into slavery as a 13-year-old boy to an Apache tribe who, after he saved the chieftain, was welcomed as a member of the tribe. Betrayal left him for dead, and eventually Hex found himself fighting in the war between the states. Following the war, Hex became a bounty hunter by accident, and the series template was set. As a reader, I never had an affinity for Jonah Hex, and never read any of his adventures. I knew who he was, but that was about it. However, back in the day, Scott Gardner started a podcast called Death and the Acrid Smell of Gunsmoke, and Scott's enthusiasm and love for the character led me to check out his adventures, thanks to the then-recently-released Showcase Jonah Hex Volume 1, that's a mouthful, isn't it, that I picked up cheaper to Comic Mart. 
Another reason was that Scott mentioned he liked X, whilst not actually being a fan of the Western per se. I am a Western fan, counting The Magnificent Seven and The Shootist as two of my favourite Westerns, and The Outlaw Josie Wales as one of my favourite films regardless of genre. Given that Hex bears a startling resemblance to Josie Wales, despite predating him, I figured the character may be worth a look. Do you ever read any Jonah? The, the new stuff. Well, the, um, old, the new old-style Western stuff. Yeah, and bits here and there. He was in, he was in, he has the best cameo ever in a, an episode of Raven Bulls. What? Does he? Yeah. I remember he's in an episode of Batman the Animated Series. I don't remember him in Brave and the Bullet. Oh, he's in Brave and the Bullet. It's great. He's in trouble. I think he's about to be hanged or something. Yeah. This guy's all around it. This guy on horseback, Poncho, hat shows up. Who is it? It's Batman. <laughs> <laughs> in the old west. Yeah. Do they explain why he's doing that? No, they do not. Is it just one of those lovely little pre-credit bits that Brave and the Bullet yeah. used to do quite a lot? Yeah. And Batman just shows up and rescues him? Yeah. Do you remember which episode this is so I can watch this teaser? Nope, because it's got nothing to do with... No, well, the teasers frequently didn't on Brave and the Bold. Yeah. And frequently they would swap them around. Well, there was one of them where the, the mask, the, the question's in it, and mm. he's coming back from Apocalypse, and that's it. But in a later episode, they followed up with Darkseid coming to Earth. Right. Which, that was pretty neat. See, I do know that they would sometimes swap the pre-credit sequences around on episodes. Yeah. If, like, an episode was running short or long... And they would say, well, this pre-credit scene was only three minutes, we'll cut it off though and put it on this episode. Right. So that's why the pre-credits bits were frequently nothing to do with the show. Right. But I want to see that now. Yeah, it's, it's great. He is he's definitely in an episode of Batman the Animated Series. I think it's called Showdown, isn't it? Uh, how did they get around that one? It's, it's just Jonah, it's a Jonah Hex episode. Oh, right, okay. Batman is burly in it. Right. It's all about Jonah. So I remember that being quite a good one. In addition to offering morally grey tales about the frontier, Hex also had probably the single finest tagline in the history of comics. I was going to do one of my painted dramatic readings all by my lonesome, because let's be honest, of all my appalling accents, a Southern American is one of the least appalling. Yes. (laughs) It's not good. (laughs) <laughs> but it's one of the least appalling. But, you know, I figure if you're going to go and get somebody to do something like this, go and get a professional to do it. He was a hero to some, a villain to others. And wherever he rode, people spoke his name in whispers. He had no friends, this Jonah Hex. But he did have two companions. One was death itself, the other the acrid smell of gun smoke. What do you think of that? Did you it was good? It was good, that one, not yeah. You recognised the music straight away, didn't you? I did, it was good. Yes. Yeah. yeah I, do you know, I used to listen to that show every week when it used to do it, and go, I know this bloody music from somewhere. We both played it. Yeah. Gun was great. Yeah. yeah. I used to love Gun. Yeah. We played Gun. It was, be- was that better than Red Dead Redemption, do you think? No. Oh. I'd say, okay. I'd say it just as good. Red Dead Redemption's better, but it's... Right. Did we have gone for the PlayStation? PlayStation 2. Right, I thought we did. Yeah. Who had it for the computer? Are you sure? Did Grandpa Peter not have it for the computer? No, Grandpa Peter had it for the PlayStation 2. Right. We, we nicked his copy. Oh, did we? Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Good, good, good. Anyway, back on topic. Stay on target. Thank you, Scott, for joining us. <laughs> for this week's episode you know we flew him all the way in for that yeah. we flew him all the way in he did his piece and he's gone we, we he's not the, even stuck around we even had the backing band come with him I know that that was, was, yeah, was, we, had, <laughs> we had the backing band in the car like um, what's his name in Back to the Future 3 
<laughs> ZZ Top. ZZ Top, yeah. <laughs> Stood in the background, though, I Scott spoke. And he left. Mm-hmm. Something about a plane to catch. Leave, yeah. not leaving us with ZZ Top. <laughs> yeah, we've got to entertain ZZ Top now. Bloody hell. Weird Western Tales number 17 is cover dated April, May 1973. Nick Cardi provides an appropriately moody and evocative cover of Hex approaching a sign stating, Last warning, do not pass this point. As if to emphasise the point, a man hangs by the neck from a nearby tree. It's arguably moodier in the showcase, where it's printed in black and white, obviously, but the coloured version's pretty good as well. I presume you've not looked at the coloured version. No. Fair enough. I like the low-hanging sun behind it. Or it could be the moon. It's black and white. We don't know, do we? (laughs) (laughs) Could be either. It was a western. It probably is the sun. It probably is the sun, yes. It is, is, as you say, a western. The Hanging Woman was written by John Albano and drawn by Tony DiZuniga. Dynamite Devlin and his gang hit a bank in a small town, dynamiting everyone inside and the sheriff who tries to pursue them. The townsfolk round on Hex, his reputation preceding him, asking why he didn't help out, but Jonah points out they have two hands and weapons of their own. A small child named Ned is more appreciative of Hex's abilities, and Hex changes his mind when he's offered a bounty on the men, $100 a head, by the matriarch of the town, Judge Hatchet. Hex accepts, noting that Hatchet and her boys hold the town in a grip of fear, but Hex pays it no never mind. Hatchet's spies provide Hex with the location of the gang, and he takes out the lookout and approaches the outlaws, taking Dynamite himself hostage. The remaining outlaws betray Dynamite, preparing to hurl a stick of Dynamite at Heath and Hex, but Hex plugs the guy mid-swing and the Dynamite explodes, killing both men. Hex takes Dynamite back to Hatchet and she hangs him high, earning her nickname The Hanging Woman. Hex prepares to leave town a few days later but stumbles upon a burning shack and pauses to rescue the child trapped within. Shielding the child from his father, dead, hanging from a tree, Hex takes the kids to his grandparents in town, the elderly couple the child Ned was with earlier. Ned has run away, having returned home, and the grandparents tell Hex that Hatchet's boys have been leaning on the boy for his land, which he then resells at a profit. Hex journeys up to the Hatchet ranch where he finds they are about to hang the boy and confront Hatchet and her boys. They are too lily-livered to take Hex on until he turns his back. Hex, however, was waiting and falls to the floor, six guns blazing, and both Hatchet boys fall dead. Hex turns to the boy, but Hatchet herself pulls a gun. Reacting quickly, Hex kicks out, pushing her wheelchair down the incline, and she falls off the edge, her scarf catching a protruding tree branch and hanging her by the neck. Hex notes that sometimes fate meets out its own kind of justice. Oh, I don't think we're giving anything away, so this was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Where were we? Uh, the story opens with two bangs. Dynamite Devlin and his gang blow up the bank, killing the people inside, presumably. And then they blow up the sheriff. On panel? On panel, yeah. I mean, you don't see bits of limb flying everywhere. That that could be bits of limb. But um, they throw it as he steps on it, and it blows him to tiny, tiny pieces. Yeah. So uh, that was quite... um, It's not gruesome, because it's not bloody, but quite a shocking opening. Mm. Uh, Quite a spectacular beginning. In many ways. I like that it starts with like a pre-credits teaser before you get the Jonah Hex logo and the Hanging Woman. The tagline that Scott flew all the way over to to read for us (laughs) uh, isn't actually in this issue. It's in later issues, but it's such a good tagline I felt that we had to include it. Hex's complete indifference to the townsfolk and the plight is hysterically funny. 
Hex is a man who believes a man should stand up for himself, but when he's offered a bounty on their head, he's happy to take their money. I did like that bit. It's hard not to read him in Clint Eastwood's voice, isn't it? Danged if I don't see that every last one of you fellas got two hands just like I have. How come none of you sniveling skunks didn't do your own stopping? Darcy, with me, it switches between Eastwood and John Marston. Who did John Marston's voice? No idea. In Gun? Yeah. See, no, he's Josie Wales. That's who I hear when I, I read this. I've never seen Josie Wales. I'm sorry, what? Every time I say it. <laughs> <laughs> Whooped him again, Josie. <laughs> Whooped him again, kid. Oh, come on, I can't believe you've never seen Josie Wales. Well, I want to watch... Is it Unforgiven? Unforgiven. And isn't that essentially the sequel to Unforgiven it? is Josie Wales 20 years old. Okay. I don't care that his name's William Money. <laughs> it's Josie Wales. Fair enough. 20 years old. Hell of a thing, killing a man. Take away everything he ever was. Anything he ever will be. But dying ain't much of a living. Dying ain't much of a living, boy. That's Josie Wales. You're mixing your films. <laughs> dying ain't much of a living is Josie Wales. Right. Hell of a thing, okay. killing a man is Unforgiven. Right. Don't mix, mix <laughs> up your westerns. I think the, the only Eastwood I've actually seen all the way through is um, Fistful of Dollars. Have you never watched Dirty Harry? Well, yeah, but... Oh, you mean Western? Yeah. Eastwood Western. Well, we'll watch, we should watch all of them. We should have um, a Man With No Name fest. Okay. And we should watch all of them. Speaking of Men With No Name... Except for this man. Except for this, this man has it. Speaking of Westerns, <laughs> <laughs> as we were, Hex meets up with Ned the Kid. And at the exposition handled by the boy is mostly well handled. Mm. It's delivered, because Hex doesn't know this. So it's one of those moments where, yes, the kid is giving us exposition to explain the story to us, but Hex doesn't know it anyway. And I did like that he actually he got on quite well with the kid. And it's the kid that tells Hex about hatchets and the, the nefarious ways before he's shut up. Rather unsubtly. Yeah. By the granddad in the middle of talking, Nick, shut your mouth! <laughs> and you're like, all oh, right. Okay, so there's something going on there that you don't want me knowing about. Yeah. You could have been a bit more subtle about that, couldn't you? But, you know, it's good. I also like that Hex was very surprised that Hatchet was a woman. But it wasn't played as Hex being a sexist. Mm. It was more a case of, whatever next. Wasn't it? Yeah. I liked that. I thought that was quite good. And he didn't care as long as she pairs him. <laughs> as long as he gets paid, As yeah. long as he gets paired, he doesn't, he doesn't care, does he? It was really good. The mid, there's, an ex, there's an absolutely magnificent action set piece that runs right through the middle of the comic where Hex goes after Dynamite's gang. Mm. That's brilliant, isn't it? The artwork's fantastic. Jonah's just the epitome of cool. Yeah. And in black and white, it just looks gorgeous. I love the bit where they the set the dynamite. It's like, you know in games, like say when you're playing Call of Duty, the guy yeah. gets, a, gets a, a grenade ready that you just shoot him once and the grenade does the rest. Mm. It's just that in this. Yeah, they're about to throw a stick of dynamite at him. Hex plugs him. He drops the dynamite on the floor, unfortunately, right near the box of dynamite. Yeah. So it isn't just that one blowing up. It's all of them. And I love the guy who was shooting at Hex. He's hid behind the corner. His face Mm. as he sees what's about (laughs) to happen is hysterical. Absolutely, but the middle set piece in this comic is is one of the finest action beats I've read in a comic in a long time. Since Hawkeye 3, probably. Yeah. With the the muscle car chase with the minis. Absolutely fantastic stuff. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, Hex returns to town. Hatchet asks if he wants a job. He says, not really. I'm leaving in a couple of days. 
you've paid me your money, our business is done. Uh, he then comes across the burning shack in the middle of nowhere and rescues the kid. He protects the child from seeing his dead father in the tree, yeah. which was nice. I like that bit. I thought that was really quite sweet of him in many ways. And then he turns on the hatchet. We don't get the feeling Hex has turned soft, though, for no. doing that, do you? He never shows any emotion to the kids, but he's covering her the girl's face so she doesn't see him. Mm. was just a lovely little moment and his reaction as well to the fact that the hatchet boys and the mum are going to put a bullet in Ned's head he's what six seven yeah. he's not very old and they're going to shoot him they're going to shoot him point blank in the head and the look on Hex's face when he sees them gives us everything we need to know there's another wonderfully funny bit where he faces the two hatchet boys down and uh, she says, don't draw. Don't yeah. do it. He won't draw if you don't draw. And Hex is all, well, reckon you'd rather have two live yellow-bellied pups than two dead ones, huh? Well, I tried. Anybody can do more than that. And then, of course, they shoot him the minute his back's turned, and he rolls over on the floor and guns both of them down, which is marvellous. Loved it. Mm. Absolutely loved that. So I think it's just great. Now, Hex may be a bastard, but he's a bastard with a code. And it was just excellent. That, the, the bit where he kicks her off the hill I really liked that bit yeah the panels are close to his face he's like, he looks pretty shocked though and the snap and then it's, it's like a Gwen Stacy snap yeah yeah isn't it but that last panel where he's like did this you fall to a death no the tree got a scarf yeah and the hanging woman yeah was hung bitter irony, irony. yeah Ab- absolutely fantastic sure it's a standard otter as these things used to be called in the Hollywood Reporter. But the art is magnificent, and it's exceptionally tightly plotted. Albano, who despite creating the character and writing his early adventures, never returned to scribe Hex's adventures, but he sets up elements early in the story, such as Ned very well, although the revelation that hats it's up to no good is a little bit clunky. The dialogue is gloriously Western, and this was a rollicking good read that holds up exceptionally well. Proof positive that not every story has to be epoch-making or a status quo change (laughs) or a major event. Sometimes a good story, well told, is its own reward. Hex is still around today in one of the New 52's better titles, All-Star Western. What do you think of that? What, All-Star Western? Well, what do you think of All Star Western? Well, what do you think of this? All right, no, I really enjoyed it. It's great, isn't it? Mm. Um, a lot of the times when we're picking the issues, sometimes it's ones we remember fondly. With this particular one, it was more a case of I googled the top ten Jonah Hicks adventures. Yeah, Jonah Hicks <laughs> in relation to Bill, and it obviously had to be one that we had. Yeah, which kind of narrowed it down to this showcase <laughs> volume or any new All Star Westerns. Now, seeing as the whole point of the show is the seventies. It had to be from the showcase, didn't it? And mm. I picked that one because it was like, oh yeah, we've got that one. Yeah. And it was fantastic. Out of all of what we're covering tonight, that's the one that would make me want to read more of it. Yeah, that was brilliant, wasn't it? Absolutely fantastic. So, see, though, is the lesson that we've learned there, just because something's influential and different and wacky and off the wall, does that necessarily make it as good as a standard story well told? It, if it's a good story well told, then yeah. Fair enough. Uh, Hex is an unusual character in that we know both his birth and death date. 
Yeah. Uh, at age 65, Jonah will be killed whilst playing cards, and his body is stuffed and mounted and displayed in a travelling Wild West show. Oh, yeah. True okay. story. Jonah knows how he's going to die. This adventure is just a solid example of good comics. Mm. wasn't it it was great it's not dated because it's a period of peace anyway and while it's not influential in the same way that like giant sized X-Men was and not as groundbreaking in the way that Howard the Duck was it's actually a much better comic yeah much better story in and of itself after reading it I was really in the mood for more westerns but then I turned to the next issue and it's, a, it's about what a werewolf the next issue in that yeah well I'll just pick one at random fair enough just, uh, that was a solid western story wasn't it I haven't in All-Star Western, haven't they also retold the post-crisis story? Which one? Where he travels around time and goes to the Yes, future. he's met Superman. And Booster Gold. And Booster Gold. Well, Booster Gold came back to him, didn't he? Yeah. And then he's gone in time and met up with Superman. I didn't like the sound of that when they did it post-crisis, and I don't think I like them retelling it. I'd say that's all going to be in the execution, isn't it? So, yeah. I mean, I've not got there yet. I'm still working my way through All Star Western, but I know what that happens. And I think it looks quite good. I think it's it's got potential. He's back to his normal time now, isn't it? Yeah, but haven't they fixed his face? Have they? I'm sure there was a recent cover where they've, they've fixed his, his scarred face. Again, that may just be a... Or it won't last. Maybe a misdirection or whatever. Yeah, or it won't last. It's entirely possible. Yes. Finally, tonight, the introduction of a character that was pretty much an afterthought, but ten years after his debut became a phenomenon. When writer Jerry Conway introduced the Punisher in Amazing Spider-Man 129, he was a foil for the hero, never meant to be anything more than a one-shot appearance. Conway was influenced by the morally ambiguous anti-hero that was on the rise in 70s literature and cinema. Characters like Dirty Harry Callahan and Don Pendleton's Mac Bolan, the Executioner. In fact, the Punisher is almost a carbon copy of the Executioner, both being Vietnam vets with grudges against the Mafia. Designed by Conway and John Romita, the Punisher's signature skull chest motif has arguably become one of comics' most potent symbols and, like the Bat or Superman emblem, easily replicated on t-shirts and backpacks. Over the years, the Punisher has evolved, slightly, into a complex man with an uncomplicated mission. Kill criminals. It's a simple premise, but the larger problem with the character is, after a while, all his stories are basically the same. He's a character best suited to one-shot miniseries or maxi-series. Continuing series reveal the limitations of the character, forcing writers to either introduce a supporting cast, as in the 90s titles, or make the stories about people other than Frank Castle, the titular Punisher, as Garth Ennis did in his excellent Punisher Max series. Still, this hasn't stopped the character headlining a number of continuing series in his time, most notably in the 90s, when his popularity was such that he had three ongoing monthly books. He's teamed up with a number of characters over the years, the most bizarre being Archie and Eminem. <laughs> oh yeah. I forgot about the Eminem one. All you other Punishers are just imitators. I think I might have read that actually. Have you? Yeah. I've never read that. Is it good? No, no it's not. <laughs> <laughs> that was very dead Well done. No, no, it's no good at all. Like, I thought it was like, were you expecting a different answer? <laughs> it, was, it was it was free on Marvel's digital comics. Oh, was it? Yeah. All right. Well, well, there was a free comic, and I didn't get it. It was it was ages ago when oh, right. they'd have them up on the website. They'd have issue ones and stuff. All right. So did you want to read the first issue? I, I, I honestly didn't want to read. He didn't it. shoot Eminem, did he? Sadly, no. 
Oh, now, come on, Eminem's all right. For crimes against music. <laughs> I just think he needs to lighten up a bit. You can't be angry that much all the time. It can't be good for Forget you. Forget it. He's got a daughter and he's sorry about his mum. <laughs> Let's move on. Do you ever think he'll cover shiny happy people? <laughs> I, I, want him, I want him to be old Eminem again. <laughs> Why was old Eminem different to new Eminem or young then, Eminem? Back or then, it was all, won't the real Slim Shady please? And now we know, but he was... Girl, call the Judy, angry mother, but Judy Furner. Yeah, but he's still angry all the time. Back then, you could laugh at his songs now. <laughs> Stan was particularly funny, <laughs> I thought. I love that twist ending. That makes me laugh every time I hear it. <laughs> oh, it's you. End. <laughs> Anyway, cover dated February 1974, the cover to Amazing Spider-Man issue 129 has become one of comics most recognisable. The Punisher, resplendent in his black bodysuit with large white skull covering his entire chest, takes aim with a sniper rifle and opens fire. Across the page, through a crosser, we see Spider-Man falling off a wall as two shots ricochet behind his head. The most lethal hired assassin ever, and his mission... Kill Spider-Man, reads the cover copy. And behind the most murderous plot of all time, there lurks the Jackal. Surprisingly, the cover copy is in no way intrusive. It's actually quite subtle. And it takes away from the glorious cover image by Gil Kane and John Romita, not one jot. Come on, that's iconic. You can't possibly hate that cover. No, it's iconic. But... I'm not... I'm, 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 not sure. It's it's iconic, and I like it, but... I like it. No, I like, I it. like the framing of it. I like that we see the man who's aiming, but then we see Spider-Man through his lens, through his... Um, what's that called? Eye viewer thing. The scope. That's the one. Thank <laughs> you very much. Through his scope. I like the layout of that. I think that's an exceptionally good cover. I just find it funny that... The gun is a completely fictional gun. He wasn't allowed to fire real guns then. Yeah. Despite being a killer. <laughs> and mercy bullets. You remember mercy bullets? Yeah. Oh, God. He's not a very good mercenary, though, is he? Mercy bullets are just stupid. I thought they were stupid when I was a kid. I think they're even stupider now. You know, that cover would probably be better if the Punisher was bigger than Spider-Man. Well, they are limited by how much room they've got on the cover, aren't they? I guess, but if they made Punisher... If, if they put it... Okay, if they went on, say, um, Photoshop... And they see the Punisher in the... The 1970s equivalent of Photoshop. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. You know what that'll have been? Purses and some glue. <laughs> yeah, I just think Punisher should be bigger than Spider-Man. Well, it's Spider-Man's comic. I know, but they're introducing a new character. Uh, deadly foe. The, a new deadly foe, yeah. Bad guy as well. Exactly. Well, morally ambiguous. I think he's, he's not really a bad guy. It's not really morally ambiguous. I mean, spoilers, Spider-Man lets him go at the end and calls him friend. <laughs> Yeah, alright, okay. Fair <laughs> enough. So anyone that he kills from now on, it's on Spider-Man's head. <laughs> yeah, anyway. at least that's what I got. Alright, fair enough. I can, uh, I can go with what you're saying. The Punisher Strikes Twice was written by Jerry Conway with pencils by Ross Andrew and inks by Frank Gaia and Dave Hunt. In a lure hidden to all prying eyes but ours, a sinister-looking figure watches as a man takes aim at a marble statue of our favourite wall crawler. I fail to see how proving that he can shoot a huge statue means the man identified as the Punisher will be able to take on Spider-Man, but the other man, the Jackal, seems to think it will be so. And Spider-Man must be eliminated, for he is a huge threat to the citizens of New York. Also, the Jackal tells the Punisher. 
Speaking of our hero, Spider-Man happens upon a robbery, does his stuff and snaps some photos for the Daily Bugle, which he duly drops off of that bastion of news integrity. Peter is a little down at the moment. His girlfriend, Gwen Stacy, was recently murdered by arch-villain the Green Goblin, who only Peter knows was secretly Norman Osborn. Spider-Man has been blamed for the murder, and he cannot disprove this without revealing that Norman was the Goblin, something that would devastate Peter's best friend, Harry Osborn. Peter tries to put a brave face on it as he drops the photos off, but Jonah Jameson, ever the cheerhound, shows Peter a rival newspaper with a character called The Punisher on the front page, and says he wants pictures of this guy, not Spider-Man. Spidey swings across town, wondering how on earth he's going to locate the Punisher, when the Punisher finds him. A bullet with Spider-Man's name on it is deftly avoided thanks to his spider sense, but just as Spidey seems to get the upper hand in battle, the sneaky jackal creeps up behind the wall crawler and slashes his head with his claws. Stunned and disorientated, Spider-Man falls off the building to his presumed death. The Punisher complains that this is not a just end for one such as Spider-Man, but the Jackal is more concerned that the Wallcrawler is dead than he is in any kind of justice. A quick tap of his web shooters, however, saves our hero's life, and his return to the rooftop yields a clue in the form of an abandoned weapon that still has the armorer's name on it. Pretty clumsy of the Punisher to leave that, though, wasn't it? Spider-Man heads over there after stitching up his mask, as does the Punisher, after having a falling out with the Jackal, and both men end up at the same place at the same time, which is very convenient for the conclusion of the story. Spider-Man enters first and finds the armorer dead. The Punisher, unsurprisingly, blames Spider-Man. The Punisher is no match for an up-close-and-personal battle, despite being a Marine, and Spider-Man clubs him. When he comes to, Spidey shows the claw marks on the back of the armorer's head, claw marks very similar to ones on the back of his own head, and the Punisher realises that the Jackal killed the man and left the gun on the rooftop for Spider-Man to find, so the Punisher isn't as stupid as we thought he was. The Punisher leaves as the police show up, who naturally blames Spider-Man for the deaths as the Jackal watches from afar and continues to plot. Moa, ha, and indeed, ha. How the Punisher, who bears a startling resemblance to Steven Seagal in this particular comic, only not as fat or as obnoxious or smug or irritating or eminently punchable as Steven Seagal, but the, the resemblance, the resemblance is the how he could ever think that the demonic-looking jackal was a good guy. He's never explained and makes him seem rather gullible. He seems rather dumb in this anyway. Really. Do you think? Do you think the, do you think the Punisher's yeah. a little bit stupid in this story? I think he's a he's a very two dimensional, boring character. There's not a lot to the Punisher, though, is there? But there is. In what way? He goes around killing people. That's his. That's his old raison d'être. He, he can't exactly go from say reading Punisher Max to this. No, the, there's, that, there's that a is lot a valid point. Character behind the Punisher in say Ennis's room. Yes, that just isn't there here. He just seems like a character they had for this story and then got rid of. Well, he is, essentially. That's That essentially is what he is. He maybe, was maybe never the, meant to be more than a one-shot appearance. Maybe the problems with me having read Punisher Man. Yeah, I mean, you've got to imagine, this is the first time we see him. He's not really given a lot of character development. The story isn't about the Punisher. The story is about the Jackal and his machinations towards Spider-Man, which, starting here, will spiral into the original clone saga, 
the Punisher's just a, a plot device in this issue. He's, he's a, not important. He's a really dumb plot device, though. He's, he really is. He's, he's, yes. I mean, to be fair. He's not a very good mercenary, either. He's not, because he misses. He's, well, that, <laughs> he's, got, he's got Spider-Man on the roof, right, and he goes, and he gets this thing out of the, the chimney. Yes. Okay. What is it? Is it a shotgun so we can close-range Spider-Man, take his head clean off when he doesn't suspect a thing? <laughs> no. No, it's not. It's a, it's a wire shooter that ties Spider-Man up so we can give his monologue and then shoot him. Yeah, it didn't make any sense that he would shoot a wire gun that tied him up. When he already had him. When he already had a gun that yeah. he could have just shot him with. That was a little dubious. <laughs> I, I, I will freely admit Unless that. Unless the Punisher yeah. was playing both Spider-Man and the Jackal from the start. No, that would imply that the Punisher in this story was smart, <laughs> which he clearly isn't. No. He doesn't know that the guy dressed in green like a jackal who looks like a jackal and jumps around like a loon <laughs> is the bad guy. Why you would think that he was the good guy and Spider-Man was the bad guy? Why does he not just go and ask him? <laughs> Why does he not just go to Spider-Man and go, look, are you actually guilty of any of this? And Spider-Man will go, uh, actually no. And the Punisher will go, all right, okay. <laughs> Problem solved. But then we don't have a story, really. Yeah. Do it, to be honest with you. I mean, and granted, Spider-Man is wanted for murder at this point. So it isn't much of a stretch to assume the Punisher thinks Spider-Man is a villain, but the Jackal just looks hinky. Yeah. Doesn't he? <laughs> you wouldn't trust him, would you? Well, that, but if, say, the Punisher, you know, big with all of his guns and the big skull in his chest, yes. and I'm the good guy, I kill bad guys, <laughs> would, would, you, would you believe him? I suppose no. I suppose that's a good point. Yeah, the, the, the Punisher with the skull on his chest doesn't necessarily look like a hero. I suppose that's a valid point. I mean, maybe that's what the story's about as well. Don't judge your book by its cover. Well, there is the line later on where he gets the slightest amount of character development. I was a marine once. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That counts as character <laughs> development, does it? No, the, the bit near the end where he says, Spider-Man's like, why you do this? Oh, you'll never find out. It's, no, oh. No, it's, I kill bad guys, and maybe the evil is rubbed off on me. <laughs> I'm just a warrior fighting a lonely war. <laughs> yeah. In my spare time, I write poems. <laughs> I collect daffodils, but no one's interested in that part of my personality. Woe is me. <laughs> by Frank Castle. <laughs> we don't just shoot and kill people. We shoot and kill people and then go home and moan about it to our girlfriends. <laughs> Some of us don't have girlfriends. <laughs> oh, dear me. Oh, God. Uh, Conway does throw in a, a little bit of social commentary about the quality of New York uh, at the time. Did you spot that? I don't know. Was, was New York particularly smoggy? No, I don't. At the time that this story was uh, was created? Spider-Man complains about the quality of the air anyway. Maybe he should wear one of those masks, you know, they were in Japan. <laughs> Should wear one of them when he's swinging around. Uh, the robbery sequences and the Daily Bugle stuff are deftly handled, as is the exposition that builds us, that brings us, sorry, up to speed with current events. Jonah thinks the Punisher is the most newsworthy thing to happen to New York since Boss Tweed. According to Wikipedia, a very reliable source, <laughs> a New York politician with great power and influence was Boss Tweed, who, Kel surprise, turned out to be corrupt. Of course. I'm shocked by this. I don't know about you, lovely listener, but where I'm from, the politicians are all bastions of integrity. So I am shocked by this revelation. You know you know the uh, page where he drops in on the Daily Bugle and changes? Yes. Do you not think of that middle panel of Peter Parker putting on a smiley happy face? It's the creepiest thing you've ever seen on, on in comics. It's not the creepiest thing I've ever seen in comics, but it is pretty creepy. But I, I, got, I got the impression that it was supposed to be. 
he's very much forcing himself to smile. Yeah. So it's a forced grin. But he seems to be fine on the later page. It's just that's a terrifying grin. <laughs> well, I do like as well that he goes, oh, what the hell? That's, that's, that's the face of someone who just ate your children. <laughs> it's the face of someone who just snapped his girlfriend's neck. <laughs> That's what it is. He enjoyed every second of it. <laughs> oh, uh, a fine example of Spider-Man's Spider-Sense working here only when the writer wants it to. It warns him that the Punisher is about to fire on him, but not where the danger is coming from. But it later completely fails to register the Jackal sneaking up behind him. Mm. Doesn't it? So it will warn him that he's been shot at from a fair distance away. Yeah. But when somebody's right behind him... Fails to go off. Maybe the jackal suit has spider sense proof. So he's venom now, is he? <laughs> he can make the spider sense not work. Alright, fair enough. Uh, get a couple of subplots after the initial battle between Spider-Man and the Punisher. Harry is cracking up after the deaths of Gwen and his father, and MJ is confused by her feelings for Peter and retreating into her party girl persona. Professor Warren makes an appearance, and he will reveal—he will be revealed to be the Jackal in future issues, because he has a really creepy fascination with Gwen. We may cover the original Clone Saga. I'm down with that. I thought we would. I think that may be fun. Okay. It's in the book. Mm. You know, so there's lots of other stuff. <laughs> uh, not Wolverine anymore. Yes. No, that's not there anymore. The old man Logan keeps creeping back in, doesn't it? Uh, we're brought up to date as well on the Spider-Mobile. <laughs> which yay, uh, yay the Spider-Mobile which <laughs> is one of the dumbest Spider-Man stories I, ever I, I yeah fun like it, yeah, yeah I, it's a lot of fun but the fact that it's dumb is played up in the stories isn't it yeah. Peter Parker kids constantly goes on about how dumb it is mm. so you as an audience member go yeah alright it is a bit <laughs> dumb Peter thinks it's dumb and I think it's dumb but I, I got a lot of fun out of Spider-Mobile stuff I, I like those stories a great deal uh, we find out that the Jackal planted the gun with the armourer's name on it, which does make the Punisher seem a little less stupid. Only a little. And shows the manipulative side of the character. It implies that the Jacka ha- Jackal had this planned all the time. That he was going to set the Punisher up as the murderer of the armourer. If the Punisher had succeeded, the police would have found the gun and it would have led them to the gun shop. In this case, Spider-Man finds the gun. Either way, the Jackal was being quite clever, though. Mm. as was Jerry Conway that was quite tightly plotted because you're originally reading that going the Punisher's not that dumb and then you're thinking about it and going actually the Punisher in this story could be that dumb <laughs> yeah. well then when you later find out it was all the plot machinations of the Jackal yeah he's still dumb but but it actually made sense and it works either way as well I thought it was brilliant he plants it because he thinks Spider-Man's dead yeah. so he's planted it though for the police to find Right. And so when the Punisher goes to check on the armour, he gets arrested for the murder of him. But Spider-Man finds it still gets the same end result. Mm. Spider-Man gets blamed for it and they end up fighting. I mean, it doesn't work out too well for him in the end, but, you know, whatever. Ultimately, there's a big fight scene at the end, obviously, where Spider-Man seems to handle the Punisher really easily, as you would expect. And unlike that, um, that issue of the Punisher that Garth Ennis wrote, which was... <laughs> appallingly bad. Is that Punisher kills a Marvel Universe? No, not that one. That was crap as well. But the one where he basically just uses him a punch bag. Uses Spider-Man as a punch bag for somebody else. Or was that Daredevil? What what story was it in? It's in... Is it Welcome Back, Frank? Then it would have been Daredevil. Or one of the early Punisher (coughs) titles before it became a Max. It's, It's appallingly bad, anywhere. Whereas this was not appallingly bad. I thought it was a really, a rather excellent issue of Spider-Man. 
blending subplots with a new main plot, the introduction of the Jackal, and some excellent artwork. Conway does a great job with the script, which I thought was fast-paced and exciting, and the central dilemma that Spidey can't tell the world he didn't kill Norman because of what it would do to his friend is quintessentially Spider-Man. Sadly, the Punisher's introduction is rather superfluous to the action. He's a patsy for the Jackal. Although I did like that very little was revealed about him, including his real name and his past. I find it odd that he never went after the Jackal for what he did here, but, as pointed out, Conway never really intended the character to become anything. The issue holds up quite well. It's a magnificent comic of this era, and notable not only for introducing the Punisher, but for being the first chapter in what would become the original clone saga. The issue itself is solid. It's influential and well-remembered and very expensive on the back issue market, mm. simply because it is the first appearance of the Punisher, who would go on to greater and greater notoriety in the 80s and 90s. What did you think of it? It was all right. <laughs> is that what we're going with? It yeah. was all right. It would have been fine, but I was expecting the Punisher to be better. He's just a, he's a subsidiary character in he somebody was, else's story. He was just this guy. Yeah, he's just this guy, you know? Yeah. He's not important, is he? No. Okay. Next time on an all-new episode. We've not said which one we, we like best this week. I like Jonah Hex. Yeah. But I know. I like Jonah Hex was just solid entertainment. Good story, well told, magnificent art. Doesn't need to be epoch making, doesn't need to introduce a new character or start a new storyline. Just a good story, excellently told, and is highly recommended. Thanks to Scott for flying over for joining us. <laughs> Always nice to see you. You should come over more often. Next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics, we welcome the women to Hey Kids Comics as the 70s try to keep up with the changing nature of gender politics. First up, it's the copyright-busting antics of the savage She-Hulk, the defiantly 70s Ms. Marvel, and the only woman to give Conan a run for his money, Red Sonia. We hope you will enjoy us. We hope you will enjoy us. <laughs> well, we hope that as well. But we hope that you will join us for part three of those 70s shows. See you next week. Go on. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> That's it, bro. <laughs>
Fraser, the devil will find work for idle hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Delirious, incredible, superficial, complicated.